This is the Northwestern Medicine Podcast on COVID-19 dated April 22nd, 2020. Welcome to Better Edge, a Northwestern Medicine Podcast for physicians. I'm Melanie Cole, and today we're discussing laparoscopy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining me is Dr. Magdi Malad. He's the Chief of Gynecologic Surgery in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern Medicine and the Albert B. Gerby Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Malad, it's a pleasure to have you join us today. You recently published a perspective piece on laparoscopy as a safe surgical approach during COVID-19. Can you give us a brief summary and help us to understand really the scope of the problem? Among surgeons, uh, there's a lot of fear associated with this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus um, and its associated COVID-19 infection. And right now, most hospitals, right, including Northwestern, are really doing just emergency surgeries and taking maximum precautions in the absence of being able to preoperatively test everybody, which is coming around the corner. So as a result of this sort of like maximum approach, the question has come up as to whether we ought to be avoiding certain types of surgical approaches that might put surgical personnel at risk. Specifically, should we be doing laparoscopy in patients that are COVID positive? Well, then explain to us why some members of the surgical community have challenged the use of laparoscopy. Tell us about some of their concerns and risks. Have you seen this as a common? Are they really concerned? What have you heard? Well, for sure. Yeah, there's the whole range from people who are absolutely ardent. Laparoscopy is the safest thing to we should be opening every single person. So as we think about this, we should take a step back. Uh, when we do surgery, whether it's by laparoscopy or by open surgery, we make use of uh, energy devices, electrical devices. You know, some people call it cautery devices. And when we use those types of generators, it creates what's called surgical plume. Plume can be defined as smoke and biologic matter. So it's sort of like the stuff that is being generated when you apply an electrical energy to tissue. The smoke is essentially like cigarette smoke. It's hundreds of different types of toxins and carcinogens and, uh, and so on. And we know from decades of experience that that sort of material can be toxic, toxic to the surgical staff, toxic to the patient. Um, and then there's also the biologic matter. And so the question has been, could there be the SARS-CoV virus in the tissue that we're operating on in the pelvis? So that's been the, that's been the concern. Wow, this is such an interesting topic. You and many professional organizations have strongly recommended laparoscopy for urgent gynecologic procedures during this pandemic. Explain a little bit how using it greatly outweighs the risks of using laparotomy, both for your patients and for healthcare professionals. When I looked into this, every society I, I looked into uh, came out with uh, an endorsement for laparoscopy uh, as something that should be considered given the current data. And admittedly, you know, things change, but all we can do is evidence-based medicine. And the evidence right now points to laparoscopy as being considered safe. The, uh, you know, it's important to sort of take a step back and just think about like, what is the SARS-CoV virus? And it's, a, it's an RNA virus. Uh, it's almost exclusively respiratory. So it's considered a respiratory pathogen. It travels typically in large droplets, so droplets that are above 100 microns in diameter, and as a result, during coughing, it uh, sort of is drawn uh, with gravity uh, to the uh, to surfaces, and then there's the hand-to-face uh, uh, contamination. And then there's the question about aerosols. There's been a lot um, discussed about aerosol transmission, 
And while it's uh, possible, there's not really well-documented case of of these types of viral particles that are really tiny, less than five millimeters in diameter, that sort of become airborne, sort of like hairspray, and just sort of float around and stay in the air for hours at a time. So while it's definitely debated, it's not really something that's been well documented. So here it is. This is a respiratory pathogen. It really has not been found uh, outside the respiratory system, with the exception of in a small percentage of patients, it's been found in the, in the bloodstream, but at very low levels. It's 1,000 less in the blood than it is in uh, the respiratory system. And it's been found in stool, neither of which have been shown to be infectious. So um, it doesn't seem like these viral particles are in the pelvis. And if you take like a vertical transmission, like in a woman who's pregnant, could the uterus be somehow uh, infected with the SARS-CoV virus sort of a thing? There really hasn't been any credible evidence to suggest that there are viral particles in amniotic fluid, in cord blood, or in women that are COVID positive um, that give birth among those children. There were a couple of cases that were reported, but those cases, uh, the babies were immediately exposed to the mother, and it's thought that maybe those children were exposed after birth, not necessarily like before birth. So we're not finding viral particles in the pelvis. We're not really finding it at, at high levels in the bloodstream. And even if we find those particles, it's not necessarily infectious. Well, then I'd like to expand on that for a minute, since there are so many unknowns about this virus. And including, as you just discussed, about other regions of the body that it might be located in, and you've mentioned the pelvis, can it be potentially transmitted during laparoscopic procedures? And what have you seen, doctor, with other pathogens like HIV, hepatitis? How does this influence your recommendations and approach? I mean, as far as we know, we're, we're not finding it in the pelvis. We're not finding it uh, at infectious levels in the bloodstream. Um, so it doesn't seem to be there. But if we take the lessons from other viruses, for example, the SARS one virus or the MERS virus or even influenza, we don't find uh, a higher risk of transmission from the surgical plume at, uh, at surgery. So we're not seeing surgical personnel in, uh, getting these infections because we were operating on those patients. In fact, if you take influenza, you don't even find particles, genetic, genetic material from uh, influenza in the bloodstream. So it doesn't seem like it's really in the pelvis, nor is it being transmitted in that surgical plume and the smoke that's generated during surgery. Well, then for providers and for surgeons, what are some of the precautions that they can take to minimize the risk of exposure during laparoscopic procedures? Tell us a little bit about minimizing, you know, personnel during intubation and, as you said, managing the surgical plume. Speak about all of those precautions that you're taking right now. Exactly. So it's, and it's all about safety first. And so the, the most important thing is that it's a respiratory pathogen and the number one risk to surgical personnel is during intubation and during extubation. So why not minimize the personnel uh, during that critical phase? Why, why is, are the surgeons in the room during intubation and extubation? They can certainly be outside the room. Obviously, making use of uh, protective uh, equipment and making sure you put it on properly and take it off properly. Uh, Preoperative pre testing, by far, is the probably the most important thing once that's available. Room air filtration. So we, we want negative filtration to sort of suction up any kind of respiratory droplets, since that's the number one risk factor. And, of course, sterilization of surgical surfaces, which we always do. And then during laparoscopy itself, like 
we've now had decades of experience with plume being toxic. So we should be managing that plume laparoscopically for the safety of the surgical personnel the way we did before, which is keeping pressures in the abdomen low, making sure that the trocar sites are tight so there isn't leakage during uh, along those sites, making use of minimal energy, so uh, electrical energy, just making use of just enough for what we use, and then filtering whatever outflow there is. So we don't want to release the gas from the abdomen into the environment. That would be you know, um, potentially dangerous, um, separate from SARS, you know, uh, just dangerous from those other toxins we talked about in the smoke. So we want to have a filter hook, hooked up to the outflow. There's HEPA filters and there's ultra-low filters called ULPA filters. These filter out very fine particles and droplets. So even, let's say, even if there are particles in the pelvis and even if those particles are infectious, these filters should really filter out to keep the surgical staff safe. And then finally, at the end of the case, we want the abdomen to be empty of the gas and we don't want to release that into the environment. So that should be, we want to decrease the gas through the filter, uh, through suction, and not just sort of like open it up to the environment. Well, that's an incredible protocol, doctor. So before we wrap up, what else do gynecologists and surgeons need to know about COVID-19 to help manage their patients? Why is laparoscopy considered safe during this pandemic? I would probably reverse the question. You know, what, what if we converted all of our elective cases to laparotomy that we could have done laparoscopically? We, we have not eliminated the risk of surgical plume. In fact, it's just the opposite. Now we've exposed the staff even more because it's very difficult to scavenge the plume at open surgery. It's very difficult to suction up that smoke, whereas at laparoscopy, we keep that gas in the abdomen and then we have control over it. So we've really made it worse uh, if, if it is indeed in the plume. We've also increased the risk of complications like blood loss and incisional complications. With open surgery, they have a prolonged hospitalization. We're making use of inpatient beds that those patients could have gone home. We make use of ICU beds that are critical for patients that have COVID-19. So, you know, it's very poor use of resources. And then, of course, we're exposing our patients who were um, COVID negative to potentially COVID positive asymptomatic carriers. You know, our, our nurses, our staff, um, our doctors could be positive and they're rounding on those patients and potentially exposing them where there's, they would have been home if they hadn't uh, been opened. And then obviously the cost. So uh, I, I think in the effort to sort of do the right thing, um, I would strongly re recommend, based on the data we have now, uh, to continue to use laparoscopy as our method of access of choice. Really such an interesting topic. Thank you so much. You've made so many great points today. For other gynecologists and surgeons, thank you for joining us, Dr. Milad. And that wraps up this episode of Better Edge, a Northwestern medicine podcast for physicians. To refer your patient or for more information on COVID-19, please visit our website at nm.org to get connected with one of our providers. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other Northwestern medicine podcasts. I'm Melanie Cole.